0: I've been busy. How
1: about you? Well, I want to
2: welcome everybody back. I hope you had a wonderful lunch and you're all geared up for a very special two sessions this afternoon. Uh, This morning was certainly a very powerful start, so we're we're very happy to see many of you back and to see uh, new persons here with us. Uh, I've heard that. We need to lean a little bit forward to get close to the mic, so we're all going to try to do that so that everybody can hear in the back. My name is uh, Jack Templeton. Uh, I'm a president of the John Templeton Foundation, and I'm a member of the board of the Providence Forum, which is one of the four sponsoring organizations uh, of this meeting, which were mentioned uh, in the beginning of our program this morning. The Providence Forum is a relatively young group, beginning just three or four years ago, and has had a rather prolific uh, output in that short period of time. The principal mission is to recognize what our forefathers in this country recognized, which is that America did not happen by accident, that America was clearly and clearly in their minds was at the hand of Providence. And that's why why the name of the program is called the Providence Forum, to emphasize those concepts that the Founding Fathers had that what was started as a a very uncertain experiment in American representative democracy uh, might succeed. In fact, so uncertain were they that after the Constitutional Congress finished their deliberations, which they did completely in secret, lest there be any influence from potential uh, pressure groups outside, when they went outside at the completion, a woman walked up to Benjamin Franklin and said, Dr. Franklin what kind of government have you given us? And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. So so we have in the tables out front some very easy-to-read materials that help to highlight some of the concepts that relate very much to the concept that uh, while this was going to be a secular government, it was going to be one in which... A concept of faith was very much at the center of what this experiment in representative democracy was all about. So I hope you'll get a copy of Freedom's Holy Light. Also available to you is what has been suggested as one of the three most critical uh, articles and publications and speeches uh, in American history. The first is the Declaration of Independence. The second is the Gettysburg Address. And the third is Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham Jail. It's uh, also easy to read and very powerful in its impact, so I hope very much that you'll take a copy of that as well. (laughs) Well, a part of uh, the mission of the John Templeton Foundation is to enhance what is now a growing and increasingly dynamic field of science and religion. And so we will be talking about secularism and science. One of the most important aspects in the whole matter of secularism is the issue of whether or not science affirms and supports secularism, or whether science can also be consistent with both personal and societal expressions of faith. In longitudinal studies over many decades, there is a consistent endorsement of faith and religion as vital aspects in the personal lives of approximately 40% of scientists in the United States, and this survey spans uh, seven decades. Within the broad field of science, however, there are some differences. For example, scientists in the so-called hard sciences, like physics and mathematics, were more likely to have a personal faith relationship or spiritual or theological perspectives than are those who are in in the biological sciences. Similarly, in the human sciences of medicine, family practitioners have a much higher incidence of comfort relating their personal faith and perspectives with their scientific and medical practices than other professionals. For example, surveys show that most psychologists have a relatively low comfort level with personal faith. So, with some of these perspectives in mind, it is a great honor for me to introduce to you Professor Alvin Plantinga, who is the John A. O'Brien Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Plantinga has been a prolific writer of numerous articles and books including God and Other Minds, published in 1967, God, Freedom, and Evil, published in 1974, Does God Have a Nature, published in 1980, and Warranted Christian Belief, published in 2000. In addition, he has taught courses in philosophy for 40 years and currently teaches in the fields of philosophy of religion, metaphysics, and epistemology. It is a great pleasure, therefore, to introduce Professor Plantinga to you, who will be speaking to us this afternoon on the topic of science and secularism? And after his address, we will then have an opportunity to hear from two distinguished discussants, and I will introduce them at the end of Professor Plantage's address. Please join me in welcoming Professor Plantage.
3: much. <clears throat> Thanks very much, Jack. Um, can people hear me when I talk like this? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here at Princeton again. I've been here in the past and always enjoyed myself, have good friends here. So I'm glad to be here again. Uh, I should begin maybe by saying a word on behalf of philosophy and try to convince you that philosophy is really a worthwhile subject. Never... Ever since the days of St. Paul and his comments about vain philosophy, uh philosophy's had something of a, of a bad press, you might say. Of course, he was talking about vain philosophy. That's not, that's not the kind I'm interested in. Um, there are only three philosophers here uh, on the program, and and uh, one of them, Roger Scruton, is not just a philosopher. He's a public intellectual. And another, John Finnis, isn't just a philosopher. He's also a professor of law, so I'm the only Mere philosopher, you might say. (laughs) And uh, so I'd like to, you know, explain to you why philosophy is really a worthwhile subject. Well, one reason it's a worthwhile subject is because it shows up at the very highest levels of political endeavor in the United States. So, for example, Dwight D. Eisenhower, whom most of you don't remember, but I do, Um, once said something like this when people were criticizing his administration for being a bit old-fashioned, something like that, he said, well, I can tell you this, things are a lot more like they are now than they've ever been before. (laughs) That's philosophy. (laughs) And um, similarly, George Bush Sr., George Bush Pair, when criticized, when people were saying things weren't going as well as they should with his administration, said something like this, he said... Oh, well, here's something that's certainly true. Um, things are a lot better than they would be if they weren't as good as they are. <laughs> uh, think about that. You really can't quarrel with that, right? <laughs> and, uh, and finally, just so you don't think I pick merely on Republicans or that only Republicans um, reach these heights of philosophy. <laughs> Bill Clinton also once said something like this uh, in responding, you know, expressing his attitude towards something he said. Well, if you're at all like me, and I know I am, so and so and <laughs> such and And just one more thing before I uh, get started here. I've got to apologize to Professor Nikolai, one of my commentators, uh, for misleading him as to where lunch was. I sent him in totally the wrong direction, no doubt under the misapprehension that if he didn't have any lunch, he'd be weakened and wouldn't be able to give. <laughs> deliver as powerful a commentary, but but I see he had lunch anyway, so as a lost cause. So Science and Secularism is the title of my talk, and I hope you all have a copy of this handout, or at least have one nearby, so you can take a look at it. Um, Science is often thought to endorse, or promote, or enforce, or require, or something like that, secularism. But what exactly or even approximately is secularism? Well, suppose we start with the adjective secular and sneak up gradually on the noun. According to my dictionary, Webster's Third International, secularism, the, the term secular means, quote, of or relating to the worldly or the temporal as distinguished from the spiritual or eternal, not sacred, unquote. On this account, raking your lawn lawn would ordinarily be secular. Praying or worshiping would not be. Well, how about secularism? This would be an attitude or a position, a stance of some sort, perhaps the stance or position with respect to some particular area of life, that secular approaches are all that's necessary or desirable in uh, that particular part of life. No reference to the spiritual or eternal is needed. You might thus be a secularist and embrace secularism with respect to raking the the lawn or getting your car repaired. No reference to the eternal or spiritual is needed. That's secularism with respect to X, all right, for some department X of life. But then what would secularism tout court be? Well, for present purposes, that would be the idea that a secular approach to all of life is satisfactory or required. There is no department or aspect of life where there needs to be or ought to be a reference to the eternal or spiritual. Secularism, so construed, has been a feature of a great deal of Western academic life, going back to the Enlightenment, as we were hearing about this morning. In particular, Western academic and intellectual life, it hasn't been nearly so much a feature of academic life, for example, in China or in Africa, and it's been with us for at least the last couple of centuries. It's evident, I think, that right now there are two basic and quite different forms of secularism present in contemporary Western academia. One of these two forms is outlined and limbed and examined by uh, Professor Bas van Frossen of Princeton University in his absorbing book, The Empirical Stance. This variety is intimately connected with science and it can be briefly if imprecisely described as the position that scientific inquiry or perhaps what Van Frossen calls objective inquiry is enough. Perhaps a bit more accurately but still requiring nuance and qualification. It's the position that the broadly scientific picture of the world is enough. Of course, this invites a question, enough for what? Enough for understanding and enough for practice enough as a guide to life, enough for properly fixing belief or opinion. This scientific worldview encompasses all we need to know, and indeed, all we can know about our world and about ourselves. If there is anything in addition to or beyond the secular, it's something with which we have and can have no contact. That's one variety of secularism. Uh, and this is the variety that's my main focus in this talk and the main focus on um, um, of this conference, but it's important to see that there's another and wholly different species of the same genus. And just as the first scientific variety is limned in Van Frossen's book, so the second non-scientific variety is outlined in a review of Van Frossen's book by Richard Rorty. Van Frossen's a, a professor of uh, philosophy here at Princeton now. Rorty was a professor of philosophy here at Princeton some years back. Rorty points out that there's a kind of secularism that doesn't pay much attention to science or at any rate sees its value as merely utilitarian, no more than a means to more practical goals. Rorty may or may not be right about the nature of the practical goals embraced by this variety of secularism, but I'll comment instead on its intellectual or perhaps ideological side. And here what's fundamental is, is a turning away from science and objective inquiry, rejecting that whole endeavor as a failed project. Instead of seeing human beings as trying to achieve the truth about our world, it would instead see us as, at some deep level, constructing or constituting the truth about our world. This way of thinking goes back, of course, to Kant, and perhaps indeed to the ancient world, to Protagoras' claim that man is the measure of all things. The fundamental idea is that we human beings, in some deep and important way, are ourselves responsible for the structure and nature of the world, either individually or communally. Here I'd like, uh, as a professor of philosophy, to talk at some length about Kant, but uh, fortunately I've been prevented by the administration. (laughs) From another perspective, um, the claim claim here of this variety of uh, secularism is that there really isn't any such thing as truth. Uh, Truth with a capital T, as they tend to like to put it. What there are instead are various substitutes for truth. Sticking with Rorty, for example, there is truth, now with a small t, as what our peers will let us get away with saying. That's what Rorty proposes as a substitute for truth. And that would be fun to talk about, too. Uh, For example, think about that in connection with lying, right? Right? If you uh, lie, you can get your peers maybe to get away with, with, let you get away with saying that you didn't do it when the fact is you really did. But if you lie and let them get away, and they let you get away with saying that you didn't do it, you convince them. Then um, the truth is you didn't do it. So you didn't lie after all, right? So that's um, it's it's a very handy doctrine. <laughs> This kind of secularism, like scientific secularism, endorses the idea that we need not resort to the eternal or spiritual or supernatural. Mankind must make its own way and must fashion its own salvation. We are responsible for ourselves. And indeed, as Rorty says, we can redefine, we can remake ourselves. We're not satisfied with what we are, we can remake ourselves. This drive towards human autonomy can assume truly impressive proportions as with uh, the German philosopher Heidegger's being unable to stand the thought that he was not his own creation. He found that uh, really hard to put up with. And his remarkable idea that he was guilty by virtue of existing in a universe that he himself had not created. Um, Now, you may not believe that anybody would actually say that, uh, but uh, that's what he says. He says he's guilty. He acknowledges his guilt for existing in a universe that he hasn't himself created you can imagine him apologizing to his friends and saying, well, I'm, I'm really so sorry about this. Here I am existing in this universe that I didn't even my, create myself. I sh- it won't happen again. Won't- <laughs> <laughs> so I would say that's, uh, that's a sort of maybe an excessively tender conscience to feel really guilty about uh, something like that. Now, the contrast between these two forms of secularism, you might call them the scientific variety and the postmodern variety, is fascinating. From a Christian perspective, one of them vastly overestimates our place in the universe, taking it that we ourselves somehow have structured the world or brought it about that it's got the qualities and properties that, in fact, it's got. Whereas the other vastly underestimates us, tending to see us as just another animal with a peculiar way of making a living. So how does secularism manifest itself in science, in science as such, as opposed to various naturalistic glosses imposed on science by such opponents as Christian belief, of Christian belief as, say, Peter Atkins or Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett? Well, variously, no doubt, but one form it takes, secularism in science, is... um, is what's called methodological naturalism the methodological naturalism hereafter i'll refer to that as mn because methodological naturalism is quite uh, a mouthful the methodological naturalism that seems to characterize much science mn is proposed as a constraint on proper science it's not to be confused with philosophical or ontological naturalism according to which there is no such person as god or any other supernatural beings, the partisan of MN doesn't necessarily subscribe to ontological naturalism. Rather, it's proposed as a condition on proper science, not a statement about the nature of the universe. Of course, if philosophical naturalism were true, then MN would presumably be the sensible way to proceed in science. The rough and basic idea of MN, I think, is that science should be done as if, in some sense, ontological naturalism were true. According to MN, a proper scientific theory can't refer to God or any other supernatural agents, such as angels, uh, devils, Satan and his cohorts, etc. Furthermore, scientific description or presentation of the relevant data can't be in terms or categories involving the supernatural. And still further, a scientific theory can't employ... Sorry... There. (laughs) Still further, um, a scientific can't employ what one knows or thinks one knows by way of revelation. All of this is uh, not properly scientific. Um, There will be presumably more to MN than even these things. For example, presumably it would also involve the constraint on the appropriate body of background knowledge or belief with respect to which the initial plausibility or probability of a proposed scientific theory is to be estimated. So there's several let say at least four different ways in which uh, four different sides are parts to methodological naturalism. That background information pres- presumably will not contain any propositions obviously entailing the existence of God or of other supernatural beings. Now, how does it happen? Um, how did it happen that MN is part of current science? Uh, the great, Early scientist uh, Newton um, didn't seem to practice methodological naturalism. Newton's practice of science didn't conform to this constraint. He proposed famously that God periodically adjusted the orbits of the planets. And then later on, Laplace said he didn't have any need of that hypothesis, talking to Napoleon. Where does this dis- the constraint come from? Here I want to explore some of Baszman-Frossen's ideas. According to Van Frossen, the development of modern science involves what he calls, perhaps following Rudolf Boltmann, objectifying inquiry. According to Van Frossen, objectifying inquiry isn't either necessary or sufficient for science, but it's a prominent and profoundly important part of science. Um, it's uh, an important part of feature of most scientific inquiry. There are several aspects to uh, this notion of objectifying inquiry. But a number of these aspects can be subsumed or resumed under the striking phrase, getting ourselves out of the picture, a phrase you'll find in Van Frossen's book and a phrase I think he gets from a historian of science named Catherine Wilson. There is getting ourselves individually out of the picture. My own likes and dislikes, my my own hopes and fears and loves are not to enter in what I do or say as a scientist. So if I'm a scientist studying frogs, I won't, for example, take notes on how much I like this frog as opposed to that frog. That won't be uh, proper science. Um, Of course, my own hopes and fears and loves may serve as my motivation for engaging in science in the first place, but they're not to be part of my actual scientific scientific activity. The surgeon who dispassionately cuts into another human being displays this kind of objectivity, and to achieve it, surgeons usually refuse to operate on their own family members. Similarly, my own private and idiosyncratic moral judgments are not to enter in, either into my reports of the data or my theories. Objectivity in this sense is a matter of ignoring or bracketing or setting aside what is subjective in the sense of pertaining to one or some individuals as opposed to others. But science notoriously is also said to refrain from value judgments more generally. Not just those that don't enjoy universal assent. And the same goes for likes and dislikes. So there's a stronger sense of objectivity also operative here, getting rid of, bracketing, setting aside, at least some aspects or characteristics of human subjectivity more generally. There is, for example, our nearly inevitable propensity for making moral judgments. And the idea is that, in doing science, we should see this as something. From our side, you might say, as it were, not to be found in the things themselves, at least for the purposes of science. Similarly, for teleology, human subjects display a nearly ineluctable tendency to think in terms of teleology, perhaps because of our inveterate practical bent. Another part of objectifying inquiry, another part of taking ourselves out of the picture, is to bracket such moral judgments and think of the world at least as scientific object, as involving no purposes, no moral distinctions, no teleology. This thought goes all the way back to Francis Bacon, and if you take a look at the sheet, there's a quotation there from Bacon, um, but in the interest of time, I won't uh, read that quotation. Okay, so teleology, um, morality, uh, moral distinctions, my own likes and dislikes. Still further, human beings display a powerful inclination to personify the world, to see it as populated by living spirits who, like us, love and hate and think and believe and reason and have aims. For the animus, the whole world is alive, animated by living spirits. Part of taking ourselves out of the picture, then, is depersonifying the world, no longer looking at it as thus filled with animating spirits. And a special case of this, admittedly a very special case, as you might think, is our human tendency to think of the world as created and governed by one or more transcendent spirits. Theism can thus be thought of as a very special case of animism. Methodological naturalism, therefore, the resolve to bracket God and supernatural creatures generally for the purposes of science, can thus be seen as one more side of this attempt to take ourselves out of the picture. I'm not proposing any of this as a good reason for divesting science or the world as scientific object of teleology, moral value, and deity. I'm only proposing a possible way of understanding or seeing this denuding. Of course, we don't take ourselves out of the picture in every respect for science. For example, we engage in deductive reasoning We also assume that the future will be like the past in some obvious but hard to formulate way. You might say we engage in inductive reasoning too. We take it for granted that perception and memory are to at least a significant extent reliable, reliable faculties, reliable ways to come to know about our world. The tendency or inclination to engage in this sort of reasoning, deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, and to make these sorts of assumptions that uh, perception and memory and maybe a priori insight are reliable sources of belief, reliable in the sense that they uh, produce true beliefs. Um, these these uh, tendencies and assumptions are part of our cognitive her- heritage and clearly pertain to us as subjects. And, of course, we don't in science bracket or jettison these. If we did, we wouldn't have any way to proceed at all. So how is it decided or determined which aspects of our nature are to be bracketed in taking ourselves out of the picture? Well we might think that uh, the ones to be thus jettisoned are those aspects of our cognitive nature that are misleading, that always or often or usually lead to misleading, mistaken, false beliefs. We might think that the world really doesn't contain theology, that there really isn't any such thing as right and wrong apart from our likes and dislikes or posits that there really aren't any animating spirits nor any all-powerful, all-knowing spirit who has created us and our world. Thinking these things and thus embracing ontological naturalism and thinking that science is an effort to acquire and achieve truth, we jettison those parts of our cognitive establishment, retaining those parts we think are not in this way misleading. That's one uh, way of thinking about it. But of course, we don't have to go nearly as far as all that Uh, to embrace MN. We might instead believe for one reason or another that the ends of inquiry are better served by these restrictions or jettisonings or deletions. We then take the following position for the purposes of scientific inquiry. The best procedure, the one most likely to enable us to achieve the aim or end of science, whatever precisely we think that is, is that of setting aside, ignoring bracketing our beliefs, if any, in such a supernatural person as God. Hence, methodological naturalism. Of course, none of this answers the question why we should bracket these beliefs in doing science. Why is that a better way to do it? I'd like, uh, I don't have time to go into this. I'd like to record my conviction that there isn't any good reason for so doing, and that as a matter of fact, science that begins with the idea that God has created the world and created us in his own image is perfectly acceptable as science, but that's a topic for another occasion. Now I come to Part 2, Evolutionary Psychology and Christian Belief. Let's see if I can manage this without spilling water all over myself. It's not so easy to find conflicts between current science and Christian belief, even orthodox, conservative, classical Christian belief. For present purposes, let's think of Christian belief as something like the intersection of the great Christian creeds, the ecumenical creeds such as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian, but also more specific creeds such as uh, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession, which are part of my own particular reformed um, Christian heritage. Can we find conflict between Christian belief so thought of and the declarations of contemporary science Well, one place to look, of course, is at evolutionary thought. Several importantly different ideas go under the rubric of evolution. There's first of all, the idea that the earth is ancient, vastly older than ever dreamt of by Bishop Usher. There is second, the idea that all of contemporary plant and animal life has come to be by a process of descent with modification. There is third, the idea that all the forms of life we see originated from one or at any rate, a very few aboriginal forms. There is is fourth the idea that the main mechanism driving this process of descent with modification, we could call this Darwinism, is natural selection operating on some form of uh, genetic variation where random genetic mutation is uh, the most popular suggestion. And then there's finally the idea that life itself originated by natural means, by means of the workings of the laws of physics and chemistry, let's say. Now, I'd love to discuss these ideas one by one, but time doesn't permit. So let me simply record my belief that none of these ideas is, as such, incompatible with Christian belief. Some of them might be relatively improbable from the perspective of Christian belief, but none is incompatible with it. Still, I do think there is a conflict between Christian belief and a certain part of contemporary science. uh, Sociobiology, or as it has come to be called, evolutionary psychology, which is a relatively new aspect of scientific theory and one which is um, growing rapidly, so I'm told. Even a cursory glance at the literature shows that many theories from this area of science seem, at least on first inspection, to be dip, deeply problematic from a Christian perspective. And some of these are listed on the sheet there. For example, Rodney Stark, a sociologist at the University of Washington, has proposed a theory according to which religion is a kind of spandrel of rational thought, an attempt to acquire non-existent goods, he says, eternal life, a right relationship with God, salvation, remission of sins, by negotiating with non-existent supernatural beings. The idea is that rational thought um, that is means ends or cost benefit thinking comes to be in the usual evolutionary way. But having the capacity for such thought inevitably carries with it the capacity to pursue non-existent goals like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow or those ones connected with religion that I mentioned a moment ago. Taken neat, this theory is clearly incompatible with Christian belief, according to which at least some of the supernatural beings and some of the goods mentioned do indeed exist. D.S. Wilson suggests that religion is essentially a means of social control, employing or involving fictitious belief. Again, taken neat, incompatible with Christian belief. Michael Roos and E.O. Wilson suggest that morality, or rather our moral intuitions, are, in Roos's words, a trick played on us by our genes. A group with our moral intuitions will clearly do better from the point of view of survival and reproduction than groups that lack those intuitions. According to Roos and Wilson, our belief in objective moral obligations then arises just because it's uh, (coughs) useful from an evolutionary perspective point of view, but the fact is there really aren't any such objective requirements at all. Still another example, Herbert Simon proposes that altruistic behavior, that is, behavior that promotes the uh, reproductive fitness of someone else at the expense of the (coughs) altruist's own fitness, behavior of someone like Mother Teresa, for example, is to be explained at the individual level in terms of two mechanisms. First there is unusual docility. So that the altruist, Mother Teresa, is unusually disposed to believe what her society tells her or what her group tells her about what the best way to live is. Doesn't think about it herself, but she's she's got unusual docility. The second mechanism he calls limited rationality. Because of this limited rationality, she is unable to see that this sort of behavior is in conflict with her inclusive fitness or her reproductive interests. Um, limited certainly seems to be the right word here. I mean, <laughs> someone who doesn't notice that uh, presumably um, is operating under with limited rationality. From a Christian perspective, again, this explanation is wildly off the mark. Now, I want to look into um, this question of conflict or compatibility a little further by way of examining one particular theory from evolutionary psychology a bit more carefully, David Sloan Wilson's theory of religion. Um, Wilson's basic idea is that religion plays an important role in group selection. He says, many features of religion, such as the nature of supernatural agents and their relationships with humans, can be explained as adaptations designed to enable human groups to function as adaptive units. He aims, quote, to see if the detailed properties of Calvin's church in Geneva. So he's talking here about uh, Calvinism and in particular Calvin's church in Geneva can be interpreted as adaptation to its environment. And he summarizes his theory as follows. You'll see it on the sheet there. I claim that a knowledge of the details of Calvin's Geneva clearly supports a group group level functional interpretation of Calvinism. Calvinism is an interlocking system with a purpose to unify and coordinate a population of people to achieve a common set of goals by collective action. The goals may be difficult to define precisely, but they certainly include what Durkheim referred to as secular utility, the basic goods and services that all people need and want inside and outside of religion. So Calvinism is an interlocking system with a purpose to unify and coordinate Uh, a population of people to achieve a common set of goals by collective action. This sounds a bit as if Wilson thinks of Calvinism as an intentional project or activity undertaken by people, all or some of whom undertake that project in order to achieve a common set of goals, these goals at least including that of secular utility. If this is what he means, he's wrong. Calvin and the other Calvinists weren't and aren't, I'm a Calvinist myself, so I can speak with a certain amount of limited authority, weren't and aren't embracing Calvinism as an or, in order to achieve some kind of secular utility. In fact, it's doubtful that Calvinism or Roman Catholicism or Christianity or, for that matter, Judaism or Islam are intentional activities in that way at all, activities that you um purposefully pick up and engage in in order to achieve some goal are these human are they human activities undertaken in order to achieve a goal what's the purpose or aim of being a calvinist what's the purpose or aim of believing in god well what's the purpose or aim of believing in other people or believing that there has been a past the right answer one thinks is that believing in god like believing in the past or believing in other people typically doesn't have any purpose or aim at all. If you ask me what's your purpose or aim in believing in God I would say well I think it's true you know but apart from that I don't have any purpose or aim in it. It isn't that you believe in God or other people in order to achieve some end or other. You might as well ask me what my purpose or aim is in believing that I live in Indiana or that 7 plus 5 equals 12. These are intentional activities of course but they're not undertaken in order to achieve some aim or some end. Well, perhaps Wilson isn't really proposing that Calvinists engage in a practice of Calvinism in order to achieve certain goals. Maybe he thinks that this practice has goals all right, but they aren't the goals or purposes of the people who engage in a a practice. It's rather that the aims or goals are provided somehow by evolution. And of course, It isn't that these aims or goals are aims or goals of of the process of evolution or natural selection. These processes don't themselves have any aims or goals at all. Still, the idea is that some of the structures and processes that result from natural selection do have purposes, purposes they acquire from their role in maximizing fitness. The ultimate purpose of the heart, he presumably thinks, is to enhance or maximize fitness. Its proximate purpose is to pump blood or pump it in a certain way. And the idea is that it fulfills the former purpose by fulfilling the latter. The proximate purpose of the immune system is to overcome disease. This purpose is in the service of its ultimate purpose of maximizing fitness. Whether you can really speak of purpose and proper function for organs such as the heart or liver or brain, apart from a designer and outside the context of theism, is, of course, a matter of dispute. I say you can't. But this, again, isn't the place to enter that discussion. So let's suppose that a heart or a liver, and also an activity like a religion, can have a purpose conferred upon it by natural selection even if God isn't orchestrating and guiding that process. The purpose of a religion, says Wilson, at least in the case of Calvinism, is to unify or coordinate a population of people. This isn't a purpose endorsed by those who practice the religion, but still that is what its purpose is. And here it's instructive to compare Wilson's views on religion with those of that great master of suspicion, Sigmund Freud, on Freud's view, religion, and here we're thinking especially of theistic religion, is an illusion in his te- technical sense. This sense is not such as to entail the falsehood of religious belief, although, in fact, Freud thinks there is no such person as God. Still, illusions have their uses and, indeed, their functions. The function or purpose of religious belief, says Freud, is really to enable believers to carry on in this cold and hostile, or at any rate indifferent world in which we find ourselves, into which we find ourselves thrown. The idea is that theistic belief arises from a psychological mechanism Freud calls wish fulfillment. The wish in this case is father, not to the deed, but to the belief. Nature rises up against us, cold, pitiless, implacable, blind to our desires and needs, (coughs) delivers hurt, fear, pain, and in the end she demands our death. Paralyzed and appalled, we invent, subconsciously of course, a father in heaven who exceeds our earthly fathers as much in power and knowledge as in goodness and benevolence. The alternative would be to sink into depression, stupor, paralysis, and finally death. This illusion enables us to carry on and survive. Perhaps we could put it by saying that it contributes to our fitness. Is this Freudian claim um, compatible with Christian belief? Could I accept Christian belief and also accept Freud's explanation or account of it? Well, maybe, for it is at least possible that God gets us to be aware of him by way of a mechanism like wish fulfillment. According to Augustine, um he says you have made us for yourselves O lord and our hearts are restless till they rest in you but then it might be that the way god induces awareness of himself in us is through a process of wish fulfillment we want so much to be in god's presence we want so very much to feel his love to know that we are loved by the first being of the universe that we simply come to believe this i don't say that's in fact the way things go I say, it's only po- I say only that it's possible and not incompatible with Christian belief. But there's more to Freud's account than just that we come to believe in God by way of wish fulfillment. If that were all he thinks, there would be no reason to call theistic belief an illusion. What more does Freud say here? Well, the more he says, and that which makes Christian belief an illusion is that wish fulfillment as a belief-producing process isn't reality-oriented, as we might say. We human beings display a large number of belief-producing processes or faculties or mechanisms. There is perception, memory, a priori intuition, credulity, induction, and much else. And again, I'd love to stop and talk about each one of those, but uh, again, the administration won't let me. So there are all these different belief-producing faculties or mechanisms or processes. Um, we ordinarily think that these faculties or processes are aimed at the production of true belief. That's what they are for, you might say, and that's what their purpose or function is. So perception, its purpose or function is to give me knowledge about my immediate surroundings, let's say, memory to give me knowledge or true belief about my past, etc. There are some cognitive processes, however, that are not aimed at the production of true belief, but at, some, at belief that um, has some other good quality. Someone may remember a painful experience as less painful than it actually was. According to John 16, verse 21, quote, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. You may continue to believe in your friend's honesty long after evidence and cool objective judgment would have dictated a reluctant change of mind. I may believe that I will recover from a dread disease much more strongly than is warranted by the statistics of which I'm aware. In all these cases, there is no cognitive dysfunction or failure to function properly. But the processes in question don't seem to have as their function the production of true beliefs. Rather, they produce beliefs that are useful in the context in one way or another. And exactly this is the way things stand with Freud's explanation. An essential part of his account of theistic belief is that it's not produced by truth-aimed cognitive processes, but by a process with a different sort of function altogether. And at this point, the Christian or any serious theist will disagree with him. The serious theist will think that God has created us in such a way that we come to know him, and the function of the cognitive processes, whatever they are, that produce belief in God, in us, is to provide us with true belief. So even if she agrees with Freud that theistic belief arises from wish fulfillment, she will think that this particular instance of wish fulfillment is truth-aimed or reality-oriented. It's God's way of getting us to see that he's, in fact, present and, in fact, cares for us. So at this point, she will disagree with Freud. Now, something similar goes for Wilson. Wilson holds that the purpose or function of Calvinism and Christianity generally is to enhance fitness, a group where the religion of that sort will do well in competition with groups that don't have any such religion. And specifically, religious belief plays a specific role. The role of such belief is not to reflect reality, he says, but to play a part in the production of what religion produces, the kind of behavior that it produces. As he says, our challenge is to interpret the concept of God and his relationship with people as an elaborate belief system designed to motivate the behaviors listed, that is, those cooperative-type behaviors. In a very interesting passage, he, like Freud, proposes that religious belief isn't reality-oriented, but unlike Freud, goes on to defend religious belief anyway. And you'll find that passage there on your sheet. He says, in the first place, much religious belief is not detached from reality. Rather, it's intimately connected to reality by motivating behaviors that are adaptive in the real world an awesome achievement when we appreciate the complexity that's required to become connected in this practical sense. It's true that many religious beliefs are false, taken as descriptions of the real world, but this really merely forces us to recognize two forms of realism, a factual realism based on literal correspondence and a practical realism based on behavioral adaptedness. Well, I won't read the, uh, the second of those two little paragraphs. So this account of religion, then, is like Freud's in that, like Freud, Wilson sees the cognitive processes that produce religious belief as not aimed at the production of true belief, but at belief that is adaptive by way of motivating those cooperative behaviors. Religious belief in general, and Christian and Calvinist belief in particular, is produced by belief-producing processes that are aimed not at the production of true belief, but at the production of beliefs that will motivate those adaptive behaviors. And here, someone who accepts Christian belief will be forced to object and demur, just as with Freud. For if Christian belief is in fact true, as, naturally enough, the Christian will think, it will be produced in us by cognitive processes that God has designed with the end in view of enabling us to see the truths of the great things of the gospel, as Jonathan Edwards calls them. She will probably think that these processes essentially involve what Calvin calls the internal witness of the Holy Spirit or what Thomas Aquinas calls the internal instigation of the Holy Spirit. And anything on which Calvin and Aquinas concur is something we have to take really seriously. (laughs) And so, of course, these processes will then be truth-aimed. They are aimed at enabling us to form true beliefs about what God has done and about the way of salvation. So there is indeed a conflict between Wilson's theory of religion and Christian belief. I come now to the third and last uh, part of my paper, um, Defeaters for Christian Belief. Suppose we use the term Simonian science, Simonian science, to refer to scientific theories that, like Simon's and Wilson's, are incompatible with Christian belief. Let's suppose, furthermore, perhaps contrary to fact, that Simonian science is, in fact, successful science, meets the requirements for being proper, um, <clears throat> proper, respectable science. Given that Simonian science is incompatible with Christian belief, and given the esteem in which Christians hold science, I'd like to talk about that, too, at some length, but I can't, how should Christians think about such science? Should Simonian science um, induce intellectual disquiet for Christians, a sort of cognitive dissonance, to put things less metaphorically, does the fact that Simonian science, assumed now to be uh, proper, respectable, successful science, does the fact that it comes to conclusions incompatible with certain Christian beliefs, does that fact give the Christian a defeater for those beliefs, where a defeater for a belief is a reason for rejecting some other belief that you that you, uh, that you come up with, uh, which is a reason for rejecting the first belief, all right? For doubting or rejecting the first belief. So, for example, I look into a field and see what I take to be a sheep. Um, you, whom I know to be the owner of the field, come along and tell me that there aren't any sheep in that field, but there is a sheep, there is a sheep dog that looks a lot like a sheep from this distance. Well, then I've got a defeater for my original belief that there's a sheep in that field, all right? And now my question is, does the fact, assuming that it is a fact, um, that Simonian science is good science and that it comes to conclusions incompatible with Christian beliefs, does that give a Christian a defeater for those beliefs that are incompatible with Simonian science, a reason for doubting or rejecting them? I'm just substantially out of time, but the answer in a word is no. To see why, and here we're going to ascend or perhaps descend into epistemology. And those of you with a strong allergy to epistemology should uh, not listen. All right. <laughs> to see why, why the answer is no, we need the notion of an evidence base. My evidence base is the set of beliefs to which I appeal and that I use in conducting an inquiry. Suppose I'm a detective investigating a murder. Someone floats the hypothesis that the uh, butler did it. Well, I happen to know that the butler was in Cleveland, 300 miles away at the time of the murder. That's part of my evidence base. And as a result, I will reject that hypothesis. Alternatively, I may know that that the butler is 70 years old, was a mile from the scene of the crime six minutes before the time of the crime, had no automobile, bicycle, horse, or other means of transportation in addition to his own two feet. I also know that only a very small proportion of 70-year-old men can run a mile in six minutes. Then I won't simply rule out the hypothesis that the butler did it, but I will assign it at uh, initially any rate, at any rate, a low probability. Of course, there's a lot more to be said about evidence bases, but no more time now to say it. And the next thing to see is that methodological naturalism is really a constraint on the evidence bases involved in those scientific enterprises that it characterizes. Now, Simonian science, of course, is characterized by methodological naturalism. The important thing to see, then, is that the evidence base of Simonian science is only a part, a subset, as people say, of the Christian believer's total evidence base. It's the part or subset you get by eliminating from the Christian's total evidence base anything about supernatural beings, anything that this person thinks he knows, the Christian thinks he or she knows by faith, and so on. So um, the latter, the the Christian believer's evidence base, that includes all the beliefs to be found in the evidence base of Simonian science, whatever you know by way of empirical inquiry, for example, but it also includes more. It includes belief in God and beliefs in the great things of the gospel, And this means that Simonian science need not provide the Christian theist with a defeater for those of her beliefs incompatible with Simonian science. For what the success of Simonian science really shows is something like this, that with respect to its evidential base, its conclusions are probable or sensible or approvable as science or good science. What it shows with respect to the Christian's evidential base therefore is that from the perspective of part of that evidential base that is the christian's evidential base the simonian conclusions are probable or sensible or approvable that is with respect to part of her evidential base some of her christian beliefs are improbable the ones that are incompatible with those that with respect to that evidential base are probable those that conflict with simonian science but that need not give her a defeater for those beliefs for it can easily happen that i come to see that one of my beliefs is unlikely with respect to part of my evidence base without thereby incurring a defeater for that belief at all. You tell me you saw me at the mall yesterday. I remember that I wasn't there at all, but spent the entire afternoon in my office thinking about evolutionary psychology. Then with respect to part of my epistemic base, a part that includes your telling me that you saw me at the mall, it's unlikely that I was in my office all afternoon. But that fact doesn't give me a defeater for my belief that that's where I was. My knowledge of your telling me that you saw me at the mall doesn't constitute a defeater for my belief that I wasn't there, because I remember that I was there. Another example, imagine a group of whimsical physicists who try to see how much of physics would be left if we refused to employ anything we know by way of memory in the development of physics. Well, perhaps something could be done along these lines but it would be a poor, paltry, truncated, trifling thing. Suppose further that, say, general relativity turned out to be dubious and unlikely from this point of view. And now consider the physicists who do physics from the usual scientific epistemic base and furthermore believe the results. Would they get a defeater for general relativity upon learning that it was unlikely from the perspective of truncated physics? Surely not. They would note as a reasonably interesting fact that there was indeed a conflict. The best way to think about the subject matter of physics from the standpoint of the truncated epistemic base is incompatible with the best way to think about it from the subject matter, about that subject matter from the perspective of the whole scientific epistemic base. But of course, they take the perspective of the scientific epistemic base to be normative here. It's the right perspective from which to look at the matter. As a result, their knowledge of the way things look from that truncated base doesn't give them a defeater for the beliefs appropriate with respect to the whole scientific base. Now, I submit that something similar goes for Simonian science and the Christian epistemic base. For the Christian, Simonian science is like truncated physics. Concede that from the point of view of the evidence base of Simonian science, constrained as it is by methodological naturalism, Concede that from, that from the point of view of that evidential base, Simonian science is indeed the way to go. Concede that, at least for purposes of argument. This needn't give the Christian a defeater for those of her beliefs incompatible with Simonian science at all, for the evidence base of the latter is only part of the Christian's evidence base. So, uh, by way of conclusion, a serious Christian is committed to a high view of science, Science is important and is a manifestation of the image of God in us human beings. Secularism enters science by way of methodological naturalism. As a result, a fair number of theories proposed um, uh, to be found in in sociobiology and evolutionary psychology, a fair number of such theories, ones proposed by D.S. Wilson, E.O. Wilson, Herbert Simon, Michael Ruse, and others, Um, are incompatible with Christian belief. Call such science Simonian and suppose that it is or will become good science. Does it follow that Christians have a defeater for those beliefs of theirs incompatible with such science? I answer that it does not. That's because Simonian science is constrained by methodological naturalism, but then the relevant scientific evidence base is a proper subset of the Christian's evidence base. This means that Simonian science need not constitute a defeater for Christian belief. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Professor Plantinga, for the tremendous care and thought that you put into a message, which is both challenging and very reaffirming namely that a serious Christian can embrace the importance, relevance, and many benefits of science while also recognizing the manifestation of the image of God in us. At this point, I would like to introduce our two panel discussants, who will be sharing with us some reflections on the presentation we have just heard from uh, Professor Plantage. The first discussant is Professor Alistair McGrath, who is Professor of Historical Theology at the University of Oxford. His most recent publications include a three-volume work, A Scientific Theology. In 1999, he also published a book entitled T.F. Torrance, An Intellectual Biography. His current research interests focus on the relation of Christian theology and natural sciences. He holds an Oxford Doctor of Philosophy in Molecular Biology and also an earned Oxford Doctor of Divinity in Historical and Systematic Theology. Currently, Professor McGrath also heads up a major program in science and the Christian faith. Professor McGrath, would you please lead off by sharing with us some of your comments and reflections on the presentation by Professor Plantinger.
1: Well, good afternoon, and uh, I speak to you really as somebody who is both a natural scientist and also very concerned about issues of Christian theology, and above all, how these two interact. And so I was very stimulated and interested by the paper of Professor Plantinga, particularly, I think, in relation to his endorsement of the fact that one can be a religious person, particularly a good Christian, and take the natural sciences with the utmost seriousness. I want to explore some of these themes in my brief response to what he says. First of all, I want to begin by saying how much I welcome some of the points he makes. I mention, in particular, his concerns expressed about evolutionary psychology. I think my concern about them, though, will be the lack of evidential basis for some of these theories. On reading some of them, they remind me of some of the Marxist accounts of the origins of religion and so forth, which were very influential in the 1960s and have now generally faded from view, largely on account of the lack of empirical warrant. And I want to just raise a question as to how empirically warranted some of these very ambitious theories actually are, especially in relation to the origins and purpose of religion. I think Professor Plantinga is absolutely right to raise doubts in our minds at this point, and the passage of time will doubtless reveal how much we need to add to that. But I think another point that I'd like to uh, agree with him on very much is this, this whole question of the tension between science and Christian belief. He mentioned Richard Dawkins, and perhaps we could stay with Dawkins for just a few moments, because there is no doubt that in the public mind, Richard Dawkins is a very good example of a public intellectual who takes a secularist, a rather aggressively secularist stance, on the basis of his natural science. Above all, of course, as you will know, his understanding of evolutionary biology. However, if one looks very closely at the actual genealogy of his religious opinions, then actually there is invariably a hiatus between the science and the religious belief. That in effect, the scientific evidence that Dawkins brings forward does not necessarily lead to the conclusion which he draws. And his real reason for disliking religion so much seems to be its violence. The fact that religious people seem to be committed to acts of violence, which he believes a secularist, or more accurately, an atheist, worldview would somehow eliminate. So I think we need to again raise a question mark here about whether there is a necessary link between a scientific worldview and a secularist worldview. Certainly there are many loud voices who are urging that this is the case. And indeed the popular media perception is that science and religion are irrevocably and irreversibly linked in mortal combat. But that is simply a stereotype is a stereotype which enjoyed popularity and indeed credibility in the 19th century. But I wonder if we ought to be perpetuating it today. Certainly, uh, Ronald Numbers, a very significant philosopher of science and historian of science, simply makes the point that there is no warrant for that viewpoint whatsoever. And I would endorse that and urge caution in assuming that there is some linkage between the natural sciences and secularism. There is a relationship but it's much more nuanced, I think, than some of these simplistic accounts suggest. Now, Professor Plantinga began with a very spirited and very welcome defense of philosophy, and in shifting the discussion onwards, I, I in no way want to suggest that the philosophical issues he raised are not of significance. They clearly are, but I think it's necessary to point out also that in dealing with the relation of science and secularism, we do need to look at science as a practice. In his book, Varieties of Realism, the Oxford philosopher Rom Harre draws a rather pointed distinction between those who actually do science and those who write about those who do science. And this, I think, is helpful because there is unquestionably a disjunction between the working methods and assumptions of natural scientists and philosophers of science. Professor Plantinger mentioned Bas van Fraassen, who is quite closely linked with a non-realist approach to the philosophy of science, most natural sciences, for example, on the basis of their working methods, will adopt something which is much closer, I think, to some form of realism. And in focusing on science as a practice, I'd like, if I may, to highlight two points which I think are of relevance to our discussion this afternoon. First, that if we simply look at the proportion of natural scientists who profess religious belief, then, as the most recent survey suggests, roughly 40% have no religious belief or are hostile to religion, forty percent have active religious belief, and 20% are agnostic on these issues. And that I think it warns us immediately to be on our guard against simplifications. There is no doubt that many natural sciences see a godless or secular worldview as being the most obvious or indeed the most warranted implication of their methods. But they are not even in a majority. And therefore, again, we need to exercise caution about the assumption, which seems endemic in many circles, that science is necessarily naturalistic or secular, a point I think that Professor Plantinga made very well indeed. And we might turn, I think, to Stephen Jay Gould. Stephen Jay Gould's private religious views were, I think, of the order of inclined to atheism. But nevertheless, in his published writings, he persistently reiterated that the working methods of the natural sciences are simply not competent to adjudicate on the God question. He simply made the point this is not what they can deal with. He also made the empirical point that in his experience looking at leading evolutionary biologists, some were unquestionably humanist or atheists, but others, think of Theodosius Dobzhansky, were very strongly committed Christians. Either way, he argued, you simply can't use the natural sciences to adjudicate on this issue. Now, That seems to me to be an important point to make because certainly there is the impression that to introduce religious concerns into scientific discussion is improper. And there is no doubt, I think, that this may help us understand why this perception that the natural science is inclined towards secularism has gained sway. There is no doubt that during the 19th century a very significant period of conflict emerged, but this does need to be seen in terms of the social situation of the time. At the beginning of the 19th century in England, there was a recognized social stereotype, the naturalist parson. By the end of the 19th century, the natural sciences have become professionalized and, as a matter of principle, wanted to assert their independence of the church, their independence of the clergy, and their right to independent existence, completely unfettered by the authority or ideas of the church. And in the course of this move towards professionalization, all sorts of important developments took place. And we may mention one simple example just to illustrate this. The legend of the encounter between Huxley and Wilberforce in 1860. In this legend, which dates from 1893, uh, Wilberforce is portrayed as an ignorant Anglican bishop who asked Huxley whether his grandfather or grandmother was descended from an ape to which Huxley made the remarkable and very powerful reply that he would rather be descended from an ape than to use science in such a dishonest manner. That simply does not correspond to what happened. The point to make is that Wilberforce had read Darwin's Origin of Species, had written a review of it, which Darwin regarded as being uncommonly clever, and to which he responded in print several years later. The legend dates from the 1890s, and it is intended to reinforce the perception that the sciences ought to distance themselves from the church for reasons of professional integrity. If I can make this point, from a sociological point of view, this notion of a warfare between science and Christianity or science and theology is culturally and socially conditioned and firmly located in the 19th century. I think we've moved on from there, and we need to ask what can be done to disarm this stereotype. This brings me to my second point. The second point I want to make is that it is true that in professional scientific circles, both those who are religious and those who are secular will use much the same language. Whether they're talking about something like the mechanism of oxidative phosphorylation or whatever – they will explain these without reference to God whatsoever. There will be a naturalistic explanation, as Professor Plantiger has very ably mentioned. But again, as Professor Plantiger mentioned, the Christian natural science will bring to this discussion additional presuppositions, additional ideas which, from their perspective, give the whole scientific enterprise direction and animus. And, for example, the doctrine of creation for most Christian natural scientists gives not reason merely a validation for the whole scientific enterprise, but also a framework for making sense of the world as we know it. I could illustrate this from Athanasius, Augustine, or Aquinas, but I'd like to illustrate this from the writings of John Polkinghorne. I'll explain why in a moment. Polkinghorne argues that as a theoretical physicist his concern is to account for the remarkable fact that reality is something that the human mind can grasp and represent mathematically. Why is that, he asks. And the answer he gives is very simply this, because there is a correspondence between the rationality without and the rationality within on account of the Christian doctrine of creation. He expands on this at some length. Why have I made this point from him? Because in 1978, John Polkinghorne resigned from his chair of mathematical physics at the University of Cambridge precisely in order that he might be able to address religious issues like these. Why, I wonder, did he have to leave his professional circles in order to do this? My concern, which is the key point I'd like to make in this presentation is that there is a perception that it is professionally improper to make religious connections or associations in professional scientific circles. To use Michel Foucault's idea, there is a policing of this, that in some way it is assumed that a secular worldview must predominate and that those who bring God into these discussions are somehow trespassing into the realms of superstition and irrationality, thereby bringing the whole profession into disrepute. But if you read writers like Richard Dawkins and others, they have no hesitation in drawing on their professional reputation as scientists to advocate a secularist worldview. Is this a level playing field? Do we all have a right to discuss this? It seems to me that there are some immensely important religious questions which arise from the natural sciences. It seems to me that the 40% of those who take these very seriously, and I assume the remainder who be interested in hearing these discussed, should have a forum in which these can be raised. And my real concern is that I don't see this happening the reinforcement of the perception that the natural sciences lean towards or encourage a secularist mentality seems to me to be reinforced by the difficulty in making these connections. Happily, there are organizations, and here I mention the John Templeton Foundation, who provide professional fora for discussions of precisely these things. And it seems to me that this is a growing area of discussion where the old secularist assumptions are being left behind, and some new, and I think very exciting, ways of thinking opening up. I therefore am very grateful to Professor Plantinger for giving us a framework with which to view these, a theoretical framework within, I think, which the practice of science very simply fits in. And I'd like to very much thank him for his thoughts on this matter.
2: Our second discussant uh, this afternoon is Armin M. Nikolai, M.D., who is an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School and the Massachusetts General Hospital. He has served on the Harvard Medical School faculty for the past 30 years. He is editor and co-author of one of the leading textbooks on psychiatry used in universities and medical schools throughout the world. For many years, Dr. Nikolai has taught a popular course at the medical school, and to undergraduates at Harvard College. This course has led to his recent publication and completion of a PBS special entitled, The Question of God. C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud debate God, love, sex, and the meaning of life. And so at this point, I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Nikolai to come and share some of his own perspectives on the presentation by Dr. Plantico. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Templeton. <clears throat> Many months ago, when I received an invitation, uh, the letter was so kind and the people on the phone so friendly that I said yes before I realized what I was getting into. <laughs> uh, with all of the, uh, the distinguished philosophers and theologians, I really felt out of place as a pedestrian psychiatrist. Uh, but, but this morning, as I was listening, uh, I suddenly felt more comfortable. I heard the word unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> and then erotic love <laughs> and of course we just heard uh, uh, the name of Sigmund Freud so I, I'm, I'm a little bit more comfortable than I was uh, when I arrived uh, I must say that I uh, enjoyed uh, uh, Professor Plantinga's, uh paper very much uh, he opens with the statement that science is often thought to endorse, endorse or promote or enforce or require secularism, secularism, unquote. And then he goes on to define secularism as a worldview based on the premise that, quote, a secular approach to all life is satisfactory or required. There is no department or aspect of life where there need to be or ought to be a reference to the eternal, unquote. He goes on to say that this secular or scientific worldview asserts that we learn from quote scientific or objective inquiry and that this encompasses all that we need to know and all that we can know about our world and about ourselves now i think it's important to point out as has been inferred uh, that although the secular worldview is often referred to as the scientific worldview i think freud was one of the first to to use this in his writings. It's not based on science or on information derived from science. I think it's very important uh, for us to understand that. This view is based on philosophical assumptions. It begins with the assumption that the universe is a result of random events and that life on this planet is a matter of chance, that there is no intelligence beyond the universe. And secondly, it embraces an epistemology that limits our sources of knowledge to the scientific method. Freud expresses this most clearly when he writes, quote, There are no sources of knowledge of the universe other than carefully scrutinized observations. In other words, what we call research. And then he adds this, and alongside of it, no knowledge derived from revelation." Now, that's a philosophical assumption. Dr. Plantinga notes accurately that this worldview has been a feature of much of Western life, in particular of Western academic and intellectual life, for the last couple of centuries. For several decades now, uh, going back as far as Oswald Oswald Spengler's The Decline of the West and Arnold Toynbee's study of history to present-day historians and other scholars we've been warned that we're in a cultural crisis. Uh, We hear it referred to often as our contemporary crisis of despair or crisis of meaning. With the secularization of Western civilization, we changed, these scholars tell us, from a culture with primarily moral and spiritual values to one with primarily material values. And this transition, they say, contributes to an unprecedented state of moral chaos and confusion they warned that all that we now experience the breakdown of the family the explosion of violence in the home and on the streets and in our schools widespread prostitution etc cetera, etc cetera, all this occurred uh, they remind us in ancient rome and ancient greece and other civilizations uh, just before their rapid decline now how did this process of secularization Develop on our culture. Certainly, the social sciences, especially the fields of psychology and psychiatry, played no little role. Professor Plantinga discusses the role of evolutionary psychology and the contributions of Sigmund Freud. Members within these di- disciplines tended to accept Freud's worldview, his philosophical assumptions, along with his scientific contributions. No one has influenced the secularization of our culture more than Sigmund Freud. Perhaps we could shed shed light on our discussion by uh, first defining a a, a worldview just very briefly. Whether we realize it or not, we we all possess a worldview. Our worldview is simply our philosophy of life, our attempt to make sense of and answer the fundamental questions of our existence, questions we struggle with that some level, all of our lives. Once we arrive on this planet, we look around for a few years and make one of two basic assumptions. Either we view the universe as an accident and our existence a matter of chance, that is, we embrace some form of a secular worldview, or we assume some intelligence beyond the universe who contributes order and purpose and meaning to life. That is, we we assume uh, and embrace some form of the spiritual worldview. Certainly both views prevail in our culture today. This worldview concept, I think, sheds light on the moral crisis and confusion historians have been writing about. Each of these two conflicting worldviews assume different epistemologies, different concepts of how we arrive at moral truth. The materialist or secularist view asserts that our ethics and moral values come from human experience, like our traffic laws. We make them up in terms of what's expedient and convenient for us. Morals thus change with time and culture and are therefore relative. This view dominates our most influential institutions. Professor Plantinga mentions that the secular worldview, quote, has been a feature of much of Western life, in particular of Western academic and intellectual life. Certainly, the secular materialist worldview is embraced by our most powerful and most influential institutions, not only by the majority of our colleges and universities, but also by most of the media and the entertainment fields. How do these work to help secularize our culture? An article in The American Scholar points out one method. The article gives the illustration that 30% Of all American children, one out of every three are now born to unmarried mothers, creating a kind of monstrous social problem. Yet, as the problem has grown, the media has tended to redefine it as simply another lifestyle. The article implies that without a moral law, without a moral point of reference, the standard of acceptable behavior tends to be redefined at a lower level. If secularism is a philosophy, how does this philosophy influence the field of science? One way, Professor Plantinga says, is by imposing a certain constraint on scientists, quote, the idea that science should be done as if in some sense God does not exist. And furthermore, by objecting, objectifying inquiry or getting ourselves out of the picture, unquote, to be objective, And to take oneself out of the picture is, of course, a worthwhile goal when you're doing science. But like most ideals, we can only aim for them. We almost always fall short. Professor Plantinga acknowledges that, quote, we don't take ourselves out of the picture in every respect. I would state that more strongly and say, we never take ourselves out of the picture. As scientists, we always bring our worldview to our laboratory into the observation of our data. And our worldview, our philosophy, not only influences what we investigate in the laboratory or in the clinic, but also how we interpret what we investigate. In every individual, even in scientists, there exists a certain, quote, willful blindness to data that conflicts with their worldview. The philosophy we bring to the evidence influences how we interpret that evidence, as Thomas Kuhn has demonstrated in his well-known The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. That is why two scientists can look at the same data and come away with opposite conclusions. Professor Plantinga speaks of evolutionary psychology and the many theories from this area of science that are, quote, problematic from a Christian perspective, unquote. I find it interesting that most of these theories attempt to explain why people embrace the spiritual worldview. Why do they spend so much time writing about that? People who embrace the secular worldview realize that the majority of people don't agree with them. A recent Gallup poll reports that 96% of Americans believe in God and embrace some form of the spiritual worldview. The secular worldview and the spiritual worldview, as we know, are mutually exclusive. If one is right, the other must be wrong. Now, if I embrace the secular worldview and I observe that the majority of people embrace the spiritual worldview, I can only conclude that the vast majority who embrace the spiritual worldview must be uninformed. So I must devise a theory that explains why I'm right and so many people are wrong. Uh, So We have, as Professor Plantinga explains, the theory by Herbert Simon that people like Mother Teresa, who gives of of herself in service to others, that these people are characterized by, quote, unusual docility, that is, an unusual submissiveness, and by, quote, limited rationality, unquote, that is, limited intelligence. Freud's attack on the spiritual worldview is even more overt. Once Freud defines his worldview, he begins a syst- systematic and sustained attack on the spiritual worldview, or what he calls the religious felt on John. He attacks it with sl- sledgehammer blows. He says that miracles contradict everything that has been taught by sober observation and betray too clearly the influence of the human imagination. He says the documents, the scriptures, are, quote, full of contradictions, revisions, and falsifications. And then he says outright, no intelligent person can accept the absurdities or the fairy tales of the religious worldview. So you see this effort to see people that are different than they are has not very bright, not too intelligent. Because if they're right, you see, then I'm wrong and my whole Life is headed in the wrong direction. And I, of course, I'm much too intelligent to be wrong in that respect, is the way this thinking, I think, goes. Uh, Freud goes on to write that the doctrine that the universe was created by a being resembling a man, but magnified in every respect, an idealized superman, reflects the gross ignorance of primitive peoples. In his famous Civilization and its Discontents, he writes the whole thing is so patently infantile so foreign to reality that it's painful to think that the great majority of mortals will never rise above this view, unquote. He describes the spiritual worldview as distorting the picture of the real world in a delusional manner and forcibly fixing people in a state of psychical infantilism and drawing them into a mass delusion, unquote. So Freud asserts that the majority of people who embrace the spiritual worldview are not only lacking in intelligence, but also suffers from an emotional disorder. He refers to religion as the universal obsessional neurosis. Now, to support his position as an atheist, Lewis proffers two main arguments against the existence of an intelligence beyond the universe. One argument concerns the problem of human suffering, and the other is the psychological arguments. And both arguments you hear very often If you speak to people that embrace a secular worldview, they use Freud's arguments. The scientists, the 40% that are unbelievers, you talk to them, they'll use the very arguments that Freud has spelled out. Freud has had an enormous impact on the secularization of our culture. He's influenced our language. He's influenced how we think about human behavior. He's had a considerable impact, even though most of us are not aware of it. Freud's main argument against the spiritual worldview, the psychological argument, rests on the notion that all religious ideas are rooted in deep-seated wishes and therefore false beliefs. And as Dr. Pundica noted, that he defines uh, illusion in a way that it's not necessarily false. But his writings, as you read them, make clear that he believes uh, these are are false beliefs. Uh, He writes in his famous Future of an Illusion, we shall tell ourselves that it would be very nice if there were a God who created the world and was a benevolent providence and if there were a moral order in the universe and an afterlife. But it is a very striking fact that all of this is exactly as we are bound to wish it to be. Freud, therefore, concludes that belief in God is merely a projection of powerful wishes and inner needs. He writes, religious ideas which are given out as teachings are illusions, fulfillments of the oldest, strongest, and most urgent wishes of mankind. The secret of their strength lies in the strength of these wishes. Now, I think it's important to keep in mind that all of this is theory. It's not based on scientific observation. Theory made up by individuals who embrace a secular worldview. So it should not surprise us that these theories based on a worldview that starts with the premise that there is no creator, would conflict with, or to use Professor Plantagus' term, be problematic with a spiritual worldview. Let me close with uh, a question. Does one need to embrace the secular or scientific worldview to be a good scientist? I think that's already been partially answered by uh, uh, the previous speakers. And I think the evidence weighs strongly against this. Not only, as was mentioned, uh, and this is an article that occurred in 1997 in Nature, where they interviewed prominent scientists, and certainly a large number of them uh, uh, believed in, uh, in God and had a spiritual worldview. Past and recent history document clearly that you can be an excellent scientist, and still uh, embraced the spiritual worldview. Both Blaise Pascal and Sir Isaac Newton, certainly two of the greatest scientific minds in history, wrote openly of their strong faith. And we've all heard of uh, Dr. Francis Collins to come to current scientists that are now very prominent. Uh, as you know, Dr. Scientist, uh, Dr. Collins is the internationally known scientist who as director of the National Genome Research Institute, holds what many consider the most prestigious position in science today in in the world. And Dr. Collins uh, speaks openly of his transition from an atheist, secular worldview to a strong personal faith in Christ. He shared that journey recently in a series of endowed lectures given at Harvard, and uh, one of the uh, things that came out uh, of, that, of those lectures was that he was a mature adult when he changed his worldview. And uh, I wondered as he was talking, uh, why did he wait until you know, he was a mature adult to even begin to accept answers to questions that obviously preoccupied him all of his life? And he made an interesting statement that I think characterizes many people in science, and that that was there was a kind of willful ignorance that he recognized in himself, a desire not to know, as strange as that seems. And I wonder how much this characterizes the 40 percent of scientists that, that has been mentioned as, as un, unbelievers, or perhaps 60 percent, I forget. Uh, uh, at, at any rate, uh, um, I, uh, I think I, I will, will stop there. I, uh, well, let me just close with one other, one other point, if I may just take a minute more. Uh, it would seem to me that as scientists, especially the physicists and the astronomers, as they become more and more knowledgeable about our universe, would they not see more and more evidence that there is a designer behind the design? I have a colleague who won the Nobel Prize in particle physics and he said to me once, he said, you know, since we discovered the the Big Bang Theory that physicists are now asking questions that only theologians asked in the past. I said, I, I didn't understand. He said, well, you see, when we had the steady state theory, uh, things always existed. But with the Big Bang Theory, we know there was a point in time when everything began. And so now we have to ask who was behind that beginning. And I thought it interesting uh, that, uh, that as they began to know more and more about the universe, uh, they began to see more and more evidence uh, of, of a creator behind it. Thank you very much for your attention.
2: Well, we want very much uh, to get your questions and to hear your perspectives, but before we do that, I'd like to ask Professor Plantinga to respond first to the insights and observations of our two discussants, Professor McGrath and Dr. Nikolai, Professor Plant, you. Uh,
3: thanks very much. Well, I'm I'm tempted just to say yay and amen. Uh, Let <laughs> <laughs> it go at that. I really don't have much by way of uh, serious disagreement with anything either of uh, my two distinguished uh, commentators have said. Um, I would just like to add a little bit to one point they both made, namely that. There really isn't any argument, at least any argument I'm aware of, from science to naturalism or to secularism, to the position that secularism is the is the proper or de rigueur way to think about the matters. Um, Professor McGrath talked McGrath talked about Dawkins and said there was a, a gap, a lacuna in his argument from science to secularism or science to naturalism. Uh, I certainly concur with that. In fact, I found it pretty hard to find any argument there in in that book. I found in, I mean, in the book, say, The Blind Watchmaker, I found uh, various sort of um, brave um, proposals that, in fact, there was such a link, but I didn't actually see much of an argument there at all. Daniel Dennett, who is a kind of friend, um, or at least a fellow traveler with Dawkins, Offer does offer an argument for the same conclusion he too thinks that science somehow shows that um, darwin 's dangerous idea really is a correct idea where darwin 's dangerous idea is the idea that all of life um, came to be by way of of the sorts of mechanisms talked about in evolutionary theory without any kind of divine guidance or orchestration that um, there just isn 't any such thing as that. Mind comes last in the whole order, not first. Right? Christians typically think of mind as coming. Christians invariably think of mind as coming first. God has been there all along, and God, of course, thinks, uh, knows, has aims and intentions and the like. So, why should we, what do we find in science then that suggests otherwise? What do we find in evolutionary theory? Um, Well, Dennett doesn't really say that there's anything in evolutionary theory that enforces this. Instead, he proposes a certain philosophical argument, and the argument is this. If you accept belief in God or theism, then you can't give a non-circular explanation of the arising of mentality or mind purpose in the universe. And I guess that's right. If you think God has been there all along and you won't have any theory as to how it happens that uh, their mind arises in the universe it's always been in the universe right from the very start it's it's um, one of your fundamental categories in terms of which you understand the universe god himself being a being with a mind and he thinks that's a, he thinks that's a good reason for accepting darwin's dangerous idea that mind comes last Again, the idea is only if you, if you think if you're a theist, then you can't give a non-circular explanation of the coming to be of mind in the universe. But it seems to me that's a, not to put too fine a point on it, a, a sort of ridiculous comment as a criticism. I mean, suppose instead I'm a materialist and you criticize me by saying, well, look, you can't being a materialist. Give me a non-circular account of the coming to be of matter in the universe. You think it's always been there, so you don't have any non-circular account of, as to how it came there. Well, sure, that's right, but that's not a criticism. That's not a much of a criticism of materialism either. Any any view of this general sort will start from, will have as, uh, have some idea as to what the sort of basic features of the universe are and explain other things in terms of those but not explain those things in terms of other things that's just uh, that's just the nature of the beast so as far as i can see that's um, a really poor argument um, i i did think that professor mcgrath how can i put this uh, totally diplomatically well when it, <laughs> well one more point where i really want to enthusiastically agree with him Rudolf Boltzmann once said, you know, he said something like, well, in this age of the electric light and the wireless, we can no longer believe in the New Testament vision of God and so on and so on and miracles. Um, that's nowadays has got a really quaint ring to it. if And not just because it's talking about the wireless electric light and the wireless. But I mean, consider these 40 percent of scientists. And in particular, consider the rather vast numbers of uh, scientists who are engineers and physicists, let's say. Most of them have a vastly better grasp of electricity and uh, the wireless of the whatever it is of the of the principles that guide uh, the electric that govern the electric light and the wireless than Boltman or his friends ever had. And they don't think that once you see, well, there's electric light, there's wireless we can't any longer uh, think that God does miracles or something like that. None of them think that kind of thing at all. But to come to my one point of disagreement with Professor McGrath, and it's really a minor one, I think, um, I think his understanding of Gould, of, of Gould is, uh, how shall I put it, a bit too favorable from his and my perspective. I mean, um, Gould does talk about these non-overlapping magisteria, the religious magisterium on the one hand and the scientific magisterium on the other. And he says that they shouldn't, um, neither side should stray into the other side's um, domain and so on and, and so on. Uh, But he does think that if you believe there are miracles, then you have strayed. I mean, then you have violated this line between these two magisteria. So if you so much as think uh, as a serious Christian that uh, Jesus Christ arose from the dead, um, that's something you can't properly say, to say that, that that's part of the scientific domain. To describe what actually goes on in the world, that's part of science. I mean, that's that belongs to the domain of science. So as a religious person, you are straying. You're overstepping the, the bounds between these two magisteria if you make any assertions about what the world is actually like. If, for example, you say that Jesus arose from the dead or changed water into wine, or I suppose even if you say such things as that human beings have been created in the image of God. Now, with respect to Professor Nikolai, I guess I really don't have any... Um, well, I guess I have only uh, well, two things I want to say. First of all... Um, First of all, um, I don't, I'm don't. i not sure it's quite right to say that one always brings one's worldview to the laboratory. In some sense, I'm inclined to go along with it, to think that's right, but I think one has to think about it in a more sort of detailed or nuanced fashion. You don't necessarily bring God into the picture if you're repairing your Model A Ford. Um, in a, there's God in the background, and you think God made the matter and so on from which this Model A Ford is made, but you don't have to talk about God's activity specifically in trying to figure out, you know, what went wrong. It now needs a ring job. Well, why did that happen? God doesn't really have to figure into that. It seems to me there are areas in life where um, the deliverances of reason just as such are what's relevant and the deliverances of faith maybe uh, are not. And I think this would be the way it is with respect to, say, Oh, bridge building, lots of what goes on in engineering, lots of what goes on in chemistry, a bit more dubiously what goes on in in physics um, in these areas, perhaps one can do something like enter one 's laboratory without um, without taking along one 's worldview. You take along parts of one of your worldview, but not necessarily the you might say your religious views and then one more thing, one final thing about what Professor Nikolai said. Uh, he made me see that there is a certain line of inconsistency in Freud. Freud has really, from my point of view, two different ways of accounting for religious belief, or at least theistic belief, ways that aren't compatible with each other, strictly speaking. On the one hand, um, he says that such belief is a matter of wish fulfillment, that it's an illusion, and that the process underlying this is wish fulfillment. But it's not the case that wish fulfillment is a matter of some cognitive faculty or process functioning improperly or functioning, um, or not functioning the way it's supposed to, so to speak. I mean, some of our cognitive processes are aimed at the production of true belief, but others are aimed at some other aim, some other end where this other end has some kind of importance of its own. For example, our tendency to believe in God from this perspective, um, is worthwhile and useful for us just as um, uh, David Stone Wilson says it enables us to survive in what would otherwise be an intolerable situation that we find ourselves in, so it 's not a matter of malfunction or lack of proper function from that point of view that belief in God arises. but he also says, as, as Professor Nikolai pointed out, and as I had uh, overlooked or hadn 't noticed before, he also says that religion is the universal obsessional, compulsive neurosis of the human race, of us human beings. And neurosis, that sounds more like lack of proper function. That sounds more like something's gone wrong. That sounds more like something isn't working the way it's uh, supposed to be working. So those are my comments for what they're
2: worth. Well, thank you. Uh, we could keep the dialogue, but we'd at this point like to hear from you. And I know that we have some roving mics. So the best way is I see it hand right here. Uh, could we pass that mic uh, to that gentleman there? Thank you.
4: Neil Arner, Dr. Plenninger, you suggested that Christianity merely adds a sort of second tier to the first tier of evidence bases supplied by methodological naturalism. Yet if, as you also indicated, all scientific inquiry requires presuppositions accepted on faith, would it not be more accurate to characterize Christianity as uniquely able to supply the foundation for, all the, enti- for the entire scientific enterprise? I recall that our scriptures teach that the fear of the Lord is the beginning, not the end of knowledge.
3: Um, Now, I'm not sure if I completely understand you. I I do think, first of all, that um, Christian or theistic belief more broadly does furnish the sort of basic framework for thinking of science as important and worthwhile. God created us and God created our world. God created us in his image and created us in such a way then that we resemble him, among other things, in being able to know things about our world, about God himself, about ourselves, etc. So from that point of view, the most natural thing in the world is that there should be such a thing as science. Science grew up in the bosom, the matrix of uh, Western Christianity, Western science did. And a lot of people think, and they're probably right, I mean, it's a little hard to know exactly whether this is true or not, that it couldn't really have grown up in any other kind of cultural context, in any which was very, very different from that. Maybe that's right. So I certainly agree with you there. Um, Well, all I was saying was if you take a Christian's total noetic structure or total set of beliefs, total evidential base, you'll find beliefs of all different sorts. It is possible to delete from that structure all the beliefs that have to do with what's supernatural, all the beliefs that are about God, that are about uh, Satan and his cohorts, that are about incarnation, atonement, etc. I'm not proposing anybody ought to accept what's left. I'm just saying this is possible. And I'm saying um, methodological naturalism says that's the appropriate evidential base from which to do natural science. You need an evidential base. You have to have a way of um, knowing how to proceed. You have to um, have a way of of, um, estimating the probability of various hypotheses that are proposed and the like. And the idea is, according to methodological naturalism, um, the evidential base for scientific activity should be reduced in that fashion. That's what I was saying. I wasn't saying anything. I don't know exactly how you began, but it sounded to me like that was something quite different.
2: Thank you. Uh, On this side, over there, please. And please state your name. My
4: name's Chip. Um, This is a larger question than science. It deals with basic investigation into the universe in general. And I just find epistemological problems in the Christian camp and the secular camp. Mr. Plantinga, you have written previously about The problems with Darwinism, it gives us knowledge of what might be conducive to survival, I believe, rather than truth with a capital T. And in Christianity, though, as Mr. McGrath has pointed out, I think in uh, the book Passion for Truth, and in Christian theology, the fallenness of man's reason. And so my question is, what does it mean when we say that man's reason is fallen? And in spite of this, are we as Christians on higher epistemic grounds than the secular man?
3: Oh, that sounds like a good one for you. (laughs)
5: Well,
4: I mean,
3: Alistair, you're you're the theologian here. (laughs) Well, um, okay, I'll try to answer that in part. Um, First of all, I think you're referring to uh, something I've written called an evolutionary argument against naturalism where I say that if you're a serious naturalist, you've got a real problem. The problem is this. um, If you consider the probability that our cognitive faculties are reliable, provide us with, for the most part, true beliefs, if you consider the the probability of that proposition on the conjunction of naturalism with evolutionary theory, you're going to think that probability is rather low because what naturalism... um, Naturalism tells us that this evolutionary process isn't guided by God or any other being at all, first. And second, that natural selection isn't interested in true beliefs. Natural selection is interested just in beliefs that have survival value, beliefs that will contribute to fitness, contribute to survival. Well then ask yourself now you can take you can uh, you can think about this completely generally with respect to our cognitive faculties or specified just to the kinds of faculties that produce beliefs like naturalism or like naturalism and evolution let's think about it the latter way i think the argument is stronger taken that way but i think it works taken uh, with respect to cognitive faculties generally too ask yourself then given that that's how our cognitive faculties have come to be by virtue of natural selection where natural selection doesn't care whether what we believe is true, but just as to whether what we believe will get our body parts in the right place that they can survive, for example. What's the likelihood that our philosophical beliefs or advanced scientific beliefs that seem to have next to nothing, nothing or next to nothing at all to do with our actual survival and reproduction, what's the likelihood that that those beliefs will be reliably produced? I think the answer is that likelihood is very small. That's It'll be a low probability. But if if that's the case, then I've got a defeater for the proposition that um, beliefs of that sort are reliable. And if that's the case, I've got a defeater for any particular belief I take to be produced by the faculties that produce that kind of belief. So in particular, then I've got a defeater for naturalism or for the conjunction of evolution with naturalism. So in, a, in that way, naturalism and uh, science cut against each other. Science teaches us, tells us uh, that evolution is in fact the case perhaps endorses Darwinism. But when you put naturalism together with that, then you get a defeater for, for naturalism and in fact a defeater for uh, advanced science of any kind. So there is a kind of religion science conflict here. I don't think there is any between Christianity and science, but I think there is between naturalism and science. I think that's enough.
2: Okay. I think this gentleman back there had his hand up with the white coat, or the tan coat. George Hansen.
3: A question regarding uh, Stephen Gould and Richard Dawkins. Dawkins especially has made the point that miracles pose a real particular problem. I'd like to hear the panel's views on the reality or unreality of miracles and whether they occur today and the implications
1: for reconciling science and religion. I'll start, and then the better answers will follow. (laughs) Um, It's certainly true that that, uh, Richard Dawkins um, is very negative about the idea of miracles, Although actually, I mean, he is very negative also about the possibility that the natural world in any way points to um, any sense of God within or anything like that. So this is not simply focusing on miracles as far as he's concerned. This is the whole show. The whole show as far as he's concerned of whatever there is cannot conceivably point to the existence of God because there is no God to point to. And I think that... You know, Dr. Plantinga made a point which I think just needs to be under, uh, to be emphasised again in this context, which is that if your starting point is that there is no God, then any religious belief is problematic and requires to be explained. So that, that, that point just needs to be made. In, in Dawkins' case, I mean, he, he, he is clearly adding on the point about miracles to an existing. Um, uh, discourse about how we engage with nature. I think one one thing I would want to say is that as I read the New Testament, I see the whole uh, the whole presentation of miracles taking place at two levels. One is what happened, but then the secondly, the level of what this actually means. And I notice with interest the New Testament is much much more often concerned with what these signify rather than what they are in themselves. Thus, these signify, for example, that Jesus has this status or this identity. So I can see a case to be made for, in effect, in some way, dis, uh, drawing a distinction between what happened and what the actual signification of these is. So I, I can see ways of, of dealing with this, but certainly you're quite right to notice that, that Dawkins is very very critical indeed of the role of miracles.
2: Another response?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I'd like to um, endorse that, but then I'd like to add that I myself, though I'm not a scientist, I'm not even a real philosopher of science, I don't see any, I I mean, I do endorse miracles. I think Jesus rose from the dead. I think Jesus changed water into wine. As to whether miracles occur nowadays or not, I'm inclined to think so. Um, But first of all, one has to think about what a miracle actually is. That's not so easy to say exactly what a miracle is. You can't think of a miracle as a violation of the laws of nature, let's say, if you think of the laws of nature themselves as exceptionless regularities, there won't be any violations of exceptionless regularities. If they are exceptionless regularities, then then there aren't any. And you think miracles are violations of them, then, of course, that that, that view doesn't make sense. Maybe one way to think about it, then, is maybe you should think of natural laws not as exceptionless regularities, but more the way John Mackey, who himself was no friend of uh, Christianity or theism at all, more the way he thought of it, um, the laws of nature describe the way the world ordinarily works, the way the world works when, from a theistic perspective, you might say, God does things the way he ordinarily does. Of course, sometimes he might do things differently. Then um, then when God does something differently, then this is um, not compatible with the laws of nature, but that's not a problem because the laws of nature just describe how things go on ordinarily when God is treating the matter he's made in the way he ordinarily t- treats it. So, um, so I can't see any. And and then finally, what about, well, if you think there are miracles, doesn't that create a problem for science? I can't see how. I mean, some people seem to suggest that if God ever did one thing differently from the way he ordinarily does, um, everybody's research projects would all go to smash. I can't see any reason to think that at all. I mean, suppose God on a certain occasion miraculously brings about a healing. How does that mean that one couldn't properly look into the causes of Usher's syndrome or how to cure it or the causes of heart disease? It seems to me that's got no no real connection. If one thought that God, say, uh, four chances out of five or even one out of two did things differently, so sometimes you get one kind of causal consequence, sometimes a totally different one, and it's, and it's about random when this happened. and. It was about half the time it happened that way. Well, then you'd have to think, yeah, it would be really hard to do science. But the fact that, um, the fact that say Jesus was raised from the dead, or, uh, or the fact that there have been these healings that have occurred, these in themselves, if the fact that one thinks that, that doesn't seem to me to mean for a minute that one would have to give up on science.
2: Over here, in in the back there.
4: My name is Patricia Krupp. I must say that I'm surprised by the fact that in this day and age of globalization, you all take it for granted that religion means Christianity. And moreover, one Christianity is only one thing. Now, there are many kinds, many religions in this world, and uh, this is highly re- uh, uh, relevant to what we are discussing, because it's pretty obvious to anyone who has eyes to see that religion is coming back in a big way, whether you win the argument today or not, it's coming back. The question is how is it going to affect our public space? We live in, at the moment, America is a secular society, which does not mean it's anti-religious, as everybody knows. It's a secular society in the sense that everybody can have religion privately. It is not, you can have religious congregations, but you are not allowed to uh, uh, your, your religion into the public space. It was asked this morning, uh, or somebody complained about how uh, it's too bad that uh, prayers have been abolished in schools. Well, what kind of prayer? Christian, Muslim, what kind of Christian? Muslim, Jewish, Hindu? The the point is that the moment you allow religion back into the public life, as a shaping force in public life or as a shaping force in science, you're going to have the question, which religion? You are back into religious wars. You are back into persecution. You may remember how this country came into being by people fleeing from religious persecution, intensely religious people, who nonetheless agreed to keep religion out of the public space. Now, that is the big problem that's facing us in the future, not whether there is a God or not.
2: Thank you.
1: Any um, perspective? Well, I'm I'm not American, um, so (laughs) (laughs) so if if I could, um, if I I could just just reply very, very briefly. I mean, I I fully endorse your um, hatred of violence of any sort. I would wish for a world where there was no violence of any kind, including secularists and atheists against any form of religious uh, people. So I'm sure we can all, all all agree on that. And uh, I'd like to add
3: that um, this particular question seems to me to have much more to do with some of the other sessions we'll be having. Now we're talking about secularism and science, and I wasn't uh, proposing that religion be um, endorsed by everybody that does science. Of course not. What I would think, though, is that it's perfectly proper to do science from a religious perspective. And if you ask which one, well, whichever religious perspective you happen to endorse. So Christians, it seems to me, can perfectly properly do At least social science, I don't know if it makes any difference with respect to the physical sciences like, uh, chemistry and physics, but the social sciences from a Christian perspective. I can't see how that's in any way precluded by science, by the nature of science, or how if that were to go on, there would inevitably be warfare. I can't, I don't think warfare is going to come out of a thing, out of a thing like that at all. Then as to, as to which particular, uh, religion, well, so far as this particular question goes, the, the major theistic religions would all be um, more or less at one. That is, it's not going to make a difference to the pursuit uh, to the pursuit of, say, um, of the social sciences, whether you are a Christian theist or a Jewish theist. In either case, you'll think that God created human beings in His image, that there is such a thing as sin, and that um, there has to be some kind of uh, some kind of way of dealing with this. And all that may be very relevant to the to the social sciences. So um, there will be lots and lots of people that will share the presuppositions that would go into doing science from that broadly theistic perspective.
2: Just uh, one more question. Right here, please. Um, <clears throat> uh,
5: my, my name is Gene Harper, um, and I blush to disclose that I'm a lawyer. I'm not a philosopher or a Theologian. In fact, I was John Lindsay's law partner for 15 years, and he's the one who gave us Times Square in exchange for um, the First Amendment, as we heard earlier. Um, My focus is institutional, and I'm trying to fit the discussion into an institutional focus. And as I understand it, uh, methodological naturalism or naturalism, really metaphysical naturalism is metaphysics and asserts that matter is coextensive with reality. But most religious people uh, believe that matter is not coextensive with reality. There's more to reality uh, than matter. But both of those assertions are metaphysical assertions. Neither is either religion or science, as I see it. And yet, as an institutional matter, we only let one view into our schools, into the public schools and so forth, and not the other view. And I'm wondering if you have uh, an explanation uh, for that. Uh, There of course is nothing in the law that says religious views should not be in the public square. That's an ideological preference, not anything to do with uh, constitutional arrangements.
0: I think we ought to hear from... It's time we got to Marmont. Your turn, <laughs> right? Well, I'll, I'll defer to you. Well, actually, it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it should be a philosopher or a theologian that answers that.
3: Well, um, okay.
0: Well, I, I don't
3: know what um, – well, let's see now. One, one thing you said was that these views are metaphysical. Neither one is really religious or scientific. Um, it seems to me that the view that um, there is such a person as God and that therefore it's not the case that matter is all there is, as you were putting it, I think that would be a religious view. You might say it's also metaphysical, but it certainly would be a, uh, certainly would follow from all the great theistic religions. Anybody that thinks there is such a person as God will think then that matter isn't all that there is, given that God isn't uh, a material object. Then you say, well, now, why is it that in our schools you can propose the one sort of view but not the other? Um, I don't know whether it is proper in our schools to propose atheism to propose there's no such person as God, or to propose that matter is all there is. I don't know whether, I don't know, you know, you know about the legalities of this. I don't, but I would think that's improper and wrong, um, just as I th- also think it would be wrong to teach, say, uh, Christianity in the public schools, in particular in areas where lots of the people involved weren't Christians. I mean, you can think of our getting together, and wanting to have, we all get together, we want to have schools, we want our kids to, to learn something. Well, what do we want them to learn? I guess I'd like them to l- learn about my religion or be taught my religion, that that in fact is the truth, because I think it is the truth, and I think it's a very important truth. But I can see that um, a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu might object to this and might quite properly object to it, just as I would reject uh, object to, say, um, Hinduism being taught as the sober truth of the matter. So if we're going to have schools where we've got people of all these different kinds together, then some things shouldn't be taught as the sober truth, and I think that would include religious views of those kinds, and I think it should also include atheism. There is uh, uh, something further, though. You can teach these things, you might say, not as a sober truth, but you might say conditionally. You can say, you can say well, here's one sort of view that many people hold and then explain how Christianity goes, and here's one that many people hold and explain how islam judaism hinduism buddhism how they go and you can also say and here's another view a sort of um, secular kind of view secular slash scientific where i don't think the scientific part entails a secular part at all but i mean this is how the views are already described and from that point of view here's how things look that would seem to me to be perfectly proper
2: well, I want to thank our panelists. Uh, I just want to share as a small perspective. Actually, the constitutional lawyers, the Constitution, our judges, and so on, have made it clear that youngsters are perfectly free in public schools to be able to share their religious perspectives but it can't be done in a devotional way. Uh, A youngster can say that his hero might be some hero from the Bible and write about that and be allowed to do that with full permission and full credit. Uh, The key thing is that the leader of of that uh, teaching circumstance, such as a teacher, can't uh, put forth a particular devotional viewpoint, but can be open to receiving and exchanging and discussing those viewpoints. And I think some of these issues will come up in our later sessions. We will be Regathering in about uh, 25 minutes, so uh, please take a brief break and be back with us very promptly. Thank you.